How much emissions stem from ships? How can we decrease GHG emissions of ships? Which rules exist and how are they being enforced? Today we are looking into carbon emission of ships and we discuss how the sustainable shipping may look like. I'm Julia Hörnig, Assistant Professor at Erasmus School of Law, and today we ask What is wrong with maritime trade? The sustainable law talk right from the center of trade. Rotterdam. Welcome to the third episode of this podcast where we try to tackle patterns of trade which developed over centuries and discuss potential solutions. For our third episode, I'm more than happy to welcome Dr. Katharina Solf today. Welcome. Dr. Katharina Solf earned a PhD degree in marine environmental law from the University of Hamburg. She also earned an LLM degree in shipping law from the University of Cape Town and worked from 2015 to 2021 as lawyer in different Hamburg-based law firms specialized in commercial shipping law. Since May 2021, she is part of the legal team of the Bundesamt für Seeschifffahrt und Hydrographie, the Federal Maritime and Hydrographic Agency in Hamburg. The facts. So our topic we discussed today is quite topically, so to speak. Um, the COP26 took place in Glasgow um, in Scotland quite recently from the 28th of October to the 13th of November. And it was in the focus of the world's attention. The COP26 for our audience maybe is the 20, uh, 2021st United Nations Climate Change Conference. And it was the perfect occasion for countries to update their plans to combat climate change and limit the global warming to below two degrees. And if not, and that would be, of course, ideal, 1.5 degrees. Emissions were, of course, in the focus and emissions caused by transport sectors were discussed on November 10th. It was an entire day that was devoted to the transport sector. Shipping was not listed in the big program, but shipping formed an essential part of the transport-related discussions. On November 10th, between 9.15 and 10.13, um, green shipping corridors were discussed and the so-called Clydebank Declaration was launched. We will discuss what the Clydebank Declaration is later in part three. For here, the zero emission shipping mission in the center of this discussion on November 10th shall serve as a starting point for our discussion. So Katarina, thank you for having um, for having time for us. And uh, Katarina, our topic is greenhouse gas emissions of ships. And I will refer to this either as emissions or GHG uh, emissions. But what are GHG emissions? Katarina, why are ships so threatful to the environment? Well, first, thank you very much for having me today and for letting me participate in this podcast. Um, well, we have to keep in mind that um, currently about 90% of world trade is actually carried by sea. And well, as you can see from the words world trade, ships generally do not limit their voyage to the waters of one country. I mean, world trade um, says it. Ships do connect continents and they, um, they sail through the national waters of many countries. So this means on the one hand that they also distribute pollution worldwide and on the other hand that, well, it is at, um, hardly possible to regulate ship emissions at a national level. 
So um, worldwide shipping affects the marine environment in different ways. Um, well, I can give you some examples. So ship yeah, yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. Um, uh, to put it in a broader context, so um, ship's paint contains environmentally hazardous chemicals, as you can imagine. Um, ships introduce non-native organisms as fouling or with their ballast water. Um, they discharge waste into the sea and pollute the environment with emissions or oil spills. I mean, you have heard about those huge accidents that have happened before um, that led to huge um, env environmental disasters via those oil spills. And you have ship noise. So um, what we also have to keep in mind at this is that most of the vessels sail near the coast. I mean, they go not onto the high waters, but they stay close to the coast. And those vessels were, at least until recently, mainly operated with um, so-called heavy fuel oil, which is, to put it in a bit of a later kind of a leftover garbage product from the refineries. And those heavy fuel oils actually contain significantly more sulfur and other pollutants for example, heavy metals, um, than those fuels that are actually used on land. So I hope that answers your question at least in the beginning for the first steps. Yeah, definitely. So um, maybe we can, well, it, it, it seems that the, the ships are really, really a disaster for the environment, although we, they are really, really useful for the trade. Exactly, that is exa exactly the, the problem that we have. It's, it's, they are very useful for trade because they can transport so much and they do that. Yeah. But on the other hand, you can, I mean, you see what is being used in order to, to um, fuel those vessels. Yeah, exactly. Um, let us come back to this oil. So what exactly is the problem of this? You, you mentioned the heavy fuel oil. Um, yeah. What exactly is the problem there? Well, um, in maritime shipping, heavy fuel oil um, was predominantly used as fuel, as I, as I have just explained. Um, And as I already said, it's like a garbage product from the refinery process. So to give you a bit of background, um, we already talked about oil spills and catastrophic um, 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 accidents with ships that led to um, oil pollution of the sea. And the oil that large oil tankers transport is generally um, so-called crude oil. Um, this has not yet been refined and when all more refined products have been extracted from this crude oil, that is generally on those um, oil tankers, the substance that is left is similar to, um, as you can put it, a very thick black peanut butter and that is more or less the heavy fuel oil. And okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the, with this peanut butter, it's a good explanation. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I read it and I thought it's very easy to to imagine it like that. So yeah. you can imagine that you can't use it as peanut butter in order to to use it as fuel. So um, to use it on board of ships, it actually needs to be treated in a very energy um, intensive process. So it needs to be both heated to be pumpable, so to be able to be put into the machines and to um, be used for the vessel and it need to be cleaned um, of solids so um, imagine peanut butter you need to get the solids out in order to get the whole thing running um, and so this fact is actually mostly responsible for the poor reputation of the shipping industry with regards to emissions um, 
but and there I see you want to make a point as well, but there we have to mention the IMO 2020, um, which I guess is useful to talk about at this point. Yeah, so that's what that's what I wanted to mention as well. Yes, definitely. So thank you for the explanation, and um, I I think it's always useful that not to know that's not only the use of the oil, but also how it needs to be processed. And um, yes, so thank you for this. Um, what about the figures? You said that ninety percent of world's trade is carried by sea. How large is the share of emissions from from the ships? You mentioned the IMO GHG study in two thousand twenty. What was in there? Oh, well, I have to go one step back. Sorry, but I don't want to um, spread a total yeah, 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 bad sure. light on yeah, the yeah. on the shipping industry. Where um, there have been some changes in the beginning of twenty twenty, which is called the IMO twenty twenty, and that is actually with regard to the sulfur content of the fuels. And since the heavy fuel oil has a very high sulfur content, this is very important to go to the next step. Um, because this poor reputation that the shipping industry has, has with regards to emissions changed a bit on 1st January 2020, because at that point a new um, limit on the sulfur content and the fuel oil used on board of ships came into force. And this is the so-called IMO 2020. So these rules limit the sulfur and the fuel oil used on board um, of ships operating outside of so-called designated emission control areas to 0.5%. Sorry for the numbers, but here it's quite important because before it's actually it was actually 3.5%. Um, so you can see it's quite a significant um, um, change that has happened here. And so in order to put it into context to make it um, easier to understand, so the shipping industry um, actually has a very, very um, yeah, poor, poor reputation, I think is the best way to put it with regard to emissions because of these heavy fuel oils. Um, keep in mind, beginning 2020, sulfur content was reduced and therefore most of the ships um, fulfill these new limits by either using fuel that is low on sulfur, by um, using alternative fuels like LNG, which many people have heard about, or by installing cleaning systems um, that are mostly called, uh, that, is, that are mostly scrubbers. Really like scrubbers. <laughs> exactly. Okay, exactly. So you can see some changes have already taken place, so we can not only blame the heavy fuel oil because there have been some changes in that. But we also see that this is only a small change. It only relates to sulfur. It came quite late, we have to say. And we have to keep in mind that the sulfur content of fuels for trucks or cars that are being used on streets must not exceed 0.001%. So that's a lot lower than what the IMO proposes now for shipping. And so, you know, we come back to your question. Yeah, yeah. So, no, no, go ahead. I mean, it's um, it's a dilemma, actually. Yeah. To have this importance for the sector and at the other side, it's so polluting. Exactly. And that, that's what brings us to the numbers, I think, because there the numbers now are very interesting. Um, because as you ask, what are the numbers actually here? Um, well, I read today that um, if shipping were a country, it would be the sixth biggest in terms of emissions. I think that's, for me, it was very easy to, to um, have an idea of what that means. Um, Incredible, yes. It is, isn't it? Well, um, yeah. and you can put it into different numbers as well, because um, according to the fourth IMO GHG study from 2020, the share of shipping emissions in global human-made emissions is almost 3%. Well, that's why I like the comparison with the country, because those 3%, they don't sound like that much, I find. But True. 
this sounds yeah like a more or less small share but um you see with the six biggest in terms of emissions when it comes to countries it's quite big and um scientists have actually projected that despite the energy efficiency measures adopted global ghg emissions from ships are expected to rise by 50 to 250 percent by 2050 if business continues as usual and co2 emissions from shipping are already up by 70 percent since 1990 okay but this then brings us to actually business as usual exactly because we could witness the consequence of a container vessel which was simply too big to could have been navigated in a good way and this was the ever given um the ever given was one of the largest container vessels carrying around around about to 20,020 feet containers And there is a general tendency towards bigger, more capacity, and I assume also more emissions. So is this then the way forward that we accept the emissions of the ships, which is so tremendous, and but we allow them to carry simply more? Well, um, I mean, you have to look at it um, from, from dis different perspectives, because on the one hand, you're right, um, those huge vessels, they definitely... Um, have or they, they give out more emissions but on the other hand they are also able and there you have this this conflict that you have mentioned before already they also manage to transport a lot of cargo so they are actually kind of efficient but they not only post the the um, the risk well the the problem of emissions they also bring with them different risks because you You already mentioned the ever given and I mean, let's remember what impact this vessel had on international trade. But um, yes. as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a Hamburg resident and for me, the CSCL Ocean immediately comes to mind. That was a 400 meter. I think you have heard about that incident, I guess. Yes, yes. I, I did, so yeah, the, but the audience may, okay, may to give, yeah. want to, to read it. <laughs> Thank you. In order to give some background for the, for the, for the rest of you. Um, The um, CSCL Ocean um, was a 400-meter giant and at the time one of the largest ships in the world. And it actually ran aground in the River Elbe, which is um, here in Hamburg, in 2016. And it threatened to break apart. And, well, you can imagine what kind of catastrophic environmental consequences that would have had. And one of the problems yeah. that really surprised me, to be honest, because I've never thought about it, was... Um, that when considering how to solve the situation and how to manage to get the vessel, it, it was floated on a sandbank, how to get it off the bank was to take the containers off, so to make it lighter. But the problem was that actually it turned out that there's almost no floating crane in the world that could have unloaded the gigantic ship um, to pre um, prevent it from breaking in two. So you can see actually those vessels, yeah, it can be a solution to transport more on a bigger vessel, Well, sure, we have more emissions, but it's also more efficient. But you can't forget what other problems this brings along. Yeah, that's true. So, um, and, and what are the, the other solutions? Do we have to get uh, go back to the old sailing vessels in the anxious times? Well, actually, it's, it's not as funny as it sounds. It's actually one of the ideas that is being um, proposed. So um, there was a EU project already running from 2012 to 2015 called SAIL. And it was suggesting or it was trying out um, possibilities with sales. And in general, the shipping industry has been working on wind power for quite a long time. If you put it 
on YouTube, you can actually check videos where they show you installations that are possible. The shipping industry is playing around with flattener rotors, with kites, or um, is even trying out to use the entire hull as a sail. Oh, that's interesting, yes. Really, really fascinating. Even as a lawyer, as a, people, as a person working in the law field, it's for me, it's so fascinating what, what possibilities are out there. But um, for now, at least that's what my experience is and what my my knowledge is, is that most of these concepts actually remain stuck in the design phase. Yeah, and I can imagine that they cannot even carry that much compared to, uh, to a normal vessel. Katarina, um, is this an issue we only face for maritime transport? Of course, the vessels are bigger than an airplane or uh, a, ro a truck or maybe a train. I mean, during the COP26, the transport-related uh, discussions concerned all kinds of emissions, such as those stemming from aviation or road transport. Is this a unique problem, at least to this extent? No, no, it definitely is not. I mean, it's, it's, it's an issue we face with transport. To give you here as well some background, some numbers, um, in the EU, transport in general, represents almost a quarter of the total greenhouse gas emissions and is the main cause of air pollution in cities. Although ship owners like to argue that the CO2 footprint of shipping is relatively small, well, as we already mentioned, um, more or less 90% of the world's goods are transported by sea. In 2015, shipping emissions actually represented around 13% of the overall EU um, GHG emissions from the transport sector. So you see, that's more or less the same, I think, um, aviation. So, but it is yeah. quite high. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. It seems there's a lot to be discussed. And thank you for this overview, Katarina. And now we move on to the legal aspects and we will discuss what authorities can do and what the legal basis are. Thank you very much for now. We will see you in this next part. See you in a bit. The legal issues. The topic of carbon emissions plays an essential role for the climate change, which we all seek to combat. The Paris Agreement was in this regard a major milestone, but also a disappointment, at least for our topic here. Because, yes, the, 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 well, the shipping industry was not sufficiently included in this discussion. And uh, specific targets for carbon emission reduction of the shipping sector were not included in the Paris Agreement. To be honest, I was quite happy to see this on the agenda uh, in Glasgow at the end of October or uh, at the um, beginning of November. Before we go into the rules and the agreements that were concluded, I would like to, to leave this to part three. I would like to discuss the basics. So Katarina, are there any rules on carbon emissions of ships at an international or at least at, an Euro, uh, at a European level? Well, with, with this introduction, actually, Julia, you already pointed out the, the kind of main players that are there on an international level. Um, so first to answer your questions, yes, there are rules in place. And as you already said, um, they are being set by, um, on the one hand, the European Union, And on the other hand, the International Maritime Organization, the so-called IMO. Okay, great. So uh, for our audience, again, I would like to repeat this. So the IMO is the International Maritime Organization. It's a United Nations specialized agency with responsibility for the safety and security of shipping and the prevention of marine and atmospheric pollution by ships. The IMO has currently 175 member states, so a large number. And of course, it includes uh, all member states of the EU as well. It has three associated members. 
the Faroe, Hong Kong and Macau. And to date, there are 80 international non-governmental organizations with an observer status with the IMO and 63 intergovernmental organizations which have cooperation agreements with the IMO. So which role does it play in the, in the emission discussion? Well, thank you very much for that introduction because those numbers are actually quite impressive, I find. I mean, it's by that you see it's huge. It's the international player for um, the, um, the maritime area. And yeah, indeed, yes. Well, yeah, and it's, it's amazing because if you, if you remember where we started, um, shipping is international. So the nations, the national law actually can't regulate it because it doesn't stop at national borders. So we need an international organization. And there you are with IMO. And there you are with an impressive number of states that it is actually representing, being that actually part of it. Um, so as an intergovernmental organization, the IMO is the forum in which its member states exchange information and consult on maritime matters. The IMO, moreover, considers all kinds of maritime questions submitted by its member states, other UN bodies and intergovernmental organizations. And it gives advice and makes recommendations and it drafts conventions, agreements and other instruments for adoption by governments and convenes international conferences. And for our... So it's really, really important and good that we exactly, have this forum. Exactly, it yeah. is. Um, and for the, for the topic that we have attended um, here, um, actually the key IMO convention um, for the protection of the marine environment is the International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships, long titles, in short, MAPOL. Okay, thank you for this long name and the short <laughs> abbreviation. So what is MAPOL? What is this about? The MAPOL convention is actually, as I already mentioned, the main international convention covering prevention of pollution of the marine environment by ships from operational or accidental causes. So the MAPOL convention and some of its protocols were adopted in, once again, in response to oil spills after tanker accidents. Um, as you will see, this is kind of a mechanism that, that often happened when you look at marine environmental law, that it was actually accidents that led to um, a change in law and to new regulations that were set up. Yeah, well, there is a saying behind every rule, there is a story at least, yeah, and <laughs> or here, in this case, a tragedy. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it is a bit tragic, but it's also fascinating to, to look at it. And in this, in this regard, um, for Marpole, actually the accident of the Torrey Canyon in 1967 um, and that was the accident that led to the first major oil spill and that oil spill caused enormous environmental damage to the coast of England and France and out of that stems more or less Marpol more or less 10 years afterwards. Okay but then at least I mean maritime industry is quite an old industry. Marpol was a convention which is rather modern then. It's changing, it's changing because the, the text of this convention itself, it only regulates the general framework mm -hmm. and the stipulations that are practically relevant. So for the day-to-day -day business are made in, in the so-called annexes to the convention. So MAPL actually consists of six annexes and one of them is the prevention of air pollution from ships. And this is the one that we are talking about here that is important for us. There's um, this Annex 6, and regarding greenhouse gas emissions, IMO has adopted mandatory measures to reduce emissions of GHG um, from international shipping under MAPO. Okay. And this is, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's the Energy Efficiency Design Index, EEDI, 
which was initially only mandatory for new ships and the ship energy efficiency management plan. Once again, long words. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, but can you at least briefly explain those two? Yeah. So the EDI and the SEEMP? Well, I try to give you a very, very short explanation. I mean, if you read up on it, it's it's pages over pages over pages. Yeah, I can imagine. It's actually a package of technical measures for new ships and operational reduction measures for all ships. So those two main measures are the Energy Efficiency Design Index that requires mm -hmm. new ships to comply with minimum, minimum mandatory energy efficiency performance levels. And those are supposed to increase over time through different phases. So you can imagine so that you make it more and more difficult for ships to actually fulfill the requirements so that ships get better and better and better. Okay, and, and what is then the goal for the long run, maybe? Do they have targets? Do they have a fixed percentage so of how they want yeah, to reduce? Yeah, sorry for interrupting. Yeah, that's no, actually no, no, the okay. case. Um, so I think the IMO aims at a CO2 reduction for new ships of 20 to 30 percent within a time span of 12 years. And it's um, there was a new index being adopted in June 2021. And then there are um, dates set in which all of this is being reviewed so that it's ah, getting okay. more stricter and stricter. Okay, very interesting. And this ship energy efficient plan, what does this mean? <laughs> that is actually um, the ship energy efficiency plan is for or was initially for the already existing fleet because as we said, the EEDI was for new builds. And so mm -hmm. to have something in place as well for the already existing fleet, that's the SEEMP. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a mechanism for ship owners to improve the energy efficiency of ships by using operational measures. We, we have talked about sales, but there are different measures like operational measures that can be easily used in order to make ships more efficient. That is, for example, um, slow steaming, you know, controlling the speed of vessels or uh, more making a cost change to tackle rough weather, hull cleaning and dry docks, stuff like that. So those are things that are being included in this um, ship energy efficiency plan that has to be established for every vessel very interesting and if you talk about optimizing of of the speed of the vessel of course then we get in conflict uh, with the efficiency of trades yes. again but you have to keep um, in mind how, how expensive bunkers hey so it's kind of always so ship fuel is very expensive which leads to ships needing to be more efficient not only in order to um, have less emissions but also to make it more um, efficient regarding money yeah yeah, definitely. Well, it's all about the money, yeah. usually. That's, that's true. Thank you for this. Uh, you said at the beginning there is an IMO uh, GHG uh, strategy. How does this work? I can imagine as an international convention, you have to find uh, a compromise between the member states. Is this working? How does it work? You're absolutely right. I mean, this is the IMO. Actually, um, it's not a state. They can't mm -hmm. make the law, so to say. They can just find a consensus on an international basis. And then the member states have to put those consensus into national law. And then they have to enforce this. And then there is, that's the point, actually, where we come back a bit to the two main players. It's on the one hand, the IMO, and on the other hand, the European Union. Because here you can see how they differ. You have the IMO, which can find an international consensus, but they have no means in order to enforce, enforce what whatever regulations they have. They always need the member states in between, whereas the European Union has the mechanisms to enforce 
and to actually change things, so to say, by itself. It doesn't have to rely on its member states. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, well, well, the European Union is powerful. It binds the member states. Uh, at least the EU, EU law binds member states. But what is the role of the European Union in this context? I mean, you said that it's international and European is, Union is, of course, only regional. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, so the European Union, um, you already said that the, all the member states of the European Union are actually member states of the IMO. The European Union itself can't be a member of the IMO because that is not possible in the IMO, but it has, I think, observer status. So it is participating in the international process. And the, IM, uh, the EU by now actually has kind of a speeding mechanism um, because since the IMO needs a lot of time in order to find a consensus on an international level, And that is what you were asking before, because you need to find a consensus between the member states. They have to find a solution. This needs time. But when it comes to GHG emissions and to the environment, we need to act faster. And that's where the EU steps in, because the EU says, well, we, we work on an international level. We help out with the IMO. But if the IMO is too slow, we will make our own rules. We will make our own regulations. And those rules as you said, can only work on a, in parts of the world, in European waters, in European ports. But there we are back again, um, shipping is international. So if a ship wants to go into European ports, those regulations could be enforced against that vessel. So it's kind of a mechanism to pressure the IMO to act faster. Okay, but, but then is this the end of the story? So we have un everything under control. We have the industry, uh, no. the industrial countries. No, we actually, yeah. Okay, yeah, well, <laughs> that's what I thought. Yeah, um, because, um, I mean, it's not a solution that things are being solved on a regional level. That's actually not working out. I mean, you can imagine then ships are going, they are not going into these ports. We have difficulties with transport. So we are, the, the most efficient level to solve those problems is the international level. But there we are back at the states, the member states of the IMO that actually need to enforce mechanisms. And that was your question, I think, before. It's on the IMO level, it's actually generally the flag states, the so-called flag states that as member states of the IMO have to enforce the regulations, the international regulations against the vessels that are flying their flag. Yeah, okay. Then <laughs> there is the explanation already. So uh, flag states means uh, that the ship sails under a certain flag means it is registered in this particular state. Absolutely correct. And what, what about this flag state? Well, it's, um, I mean, as you already said, every ship needs to fly the flag of one country. And perhaps we have to make the um, distinction here between there's on the one hand, the ship owner, the person or the company that owns the ship, and on the other hand, the ship itself. So the ship owning company can, for example, be situated in Canada, but the vessel itself can fly the flag of Liberia. You can see those two countries, those two, so to say, nationalities can be different. But why, why, should, why should a ship owner opt for another flag? Just because it's, it's more colorful? Well, that could be a nice way, but no, it's actually not that, as you can imagine. It is that um, with a flag state, you can actually, or with a flag that you, that you choose, you can actually regulate what um, regulations have to apply or do apply to a vessel. So if you um, choose a flag state that doesn't have as many regulations, imagine Germany and Liberia. 
either you comply with the labor law and the tax law of Germany or you comply with the Liberian law. You can imagine that it's not the same and that the costs for the ship owner will differ a lot. So for the ship owner, it can make a lot of sense to flag their vessel out to a flag of so-called cheaper flag, flag of convenience. Yeah, I, w I just wanted to mention, well, yeah. <laughs> isn't it convenient? <laughs> exactly, that's what it is, because it allows the ship owner to, um, to be legally anonymous and difficult to prosecute, and you have, as we said, different regulations that apply. So it's, it's economical reasons that actually lead to flagging out vessels to flags of convenience. And actually, it's more or less 73% of the world fleet is flagged out in a country other than that of the vessel's beneficial ownership. So you see... That's a large... It is. It's, it's a large percentage. And I think you see the problem there because, I mean, just to give you an idea, in, in 2018, the top ship-owning countries were actually Greece, Japan, China, US and Norway. But the, the top flag registries, the three top flag registries were Panama, Marshall Islands and Liberia. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you see, this is totally different. And then we come back to the first thing with that. It's it's actually not the the owners, the shipping the shipping companies that have to um, comply with the laws or with the regulations of the IMO. It's the flag states because in international law, those are the states that are actually enforcing the regulations. Yeah, okay. And and then it's completely understandable, at least from not from a moral point of view, of course, but at least from cost perspective and enforcement perspective to, to make this flag hopping. Exactly, but it also is a huge problem for the IMO. Yeah, yeah, of enforcement course. Enforcement of yeah. I mean of for example Marpur, because those flags I mean it's it's actually quite interesting what is behind is it's often private companies that are situated outside uh, outside the actual flag state and they just yeah run this and share the profits with the state so you can imagine there's the state is not really interested in enforcing any international law it's, it's more about no, the profit definitely. and so that is where the the imo actually has a huge problem in the enforcement area okay i'd like to to stop here thank you katarina for this uh, legal overview the main issue seems to to catch the bad guys and to enforce the rules exactly. we have <laughs> yes we will see how we can have a better fight against carbon emissions. Thank you very much. The Outlook The endless hunt after the states that constantly <laughs> refuse to comply with the rules seems, at least from my perspective, quite hopeless. And it also sounds like the end of the story and the end of the fight against climate change. But of course, we, we try to discuss solutions and that's what we're, why we are here. And to understand it a bit more why we we ended up having this this, uh, this situation we need to consider the role of the IMO again as international organization the IMO can only be as strong as the will of its member states and i read that for instance developing countries cannot even afford to have a real say in the IMO discussions because they cannot afford to send a considerable group of people uh, to the discussions. They usually only send an ambassador or, or one or two delegates. These are, however, the states which flags are the most convenient for ship owners to escape the harsh emission rules of other states. So Katarina, what, what is your way forward here? So what do you think can be a solution? Well, first, yes, you're absolutely right. This is a huge problem. You have um a lack of involvement of those developing countries that are actually the countries that are the ones that are responsible for enforcing 
and the regulations of the IMO. Yeah. Well, first it sounds a bit hopeless, but actually I think there is a way forward. And what I think, what is well, not only what I think, but what in reality is a system that came out of this problem that you just pointed out is actually the, the port state control, the so-called port state control. Okay, and uh, what does this port state control mean? Of course, we have, everyone has heard of a port, so we, we know what port is, we yeah. know what the port of Rotterdam, of Hamburg is, and state control is also quite obvious. It, are you talking about customs or what is this? No, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a gentleman agreement between different ports that agree on um, checking up on um, regulations. So it's actually the inspection of foreign ships in national ports to verify that the condition of the ship and its equipment comply with the requirements of international regulations and that the ship is meant and operated in compliance with these rules. So you can imagine... Ah, okay. Exactly. It's... it's um, port state control office check on board of ships whether the international instruments on ship safety, prevention of marine pollution and on working and living conditions of seafarers are complied with. Yeah, so stop you there. So it's, it's a huge uh, variety of, of tasks. And exactly. is this like, like the port police? Or? It, can be, it can be done by the port police. It's often like the police that actually goes out and checks the ships. So they have a catalog of international regulations that and they use in order to fulfill this port state control and with these regulations, they check ships, they go on board of vessels, they check them and they kind of have a, I mean, if you, it's like having a catalog and you just check mm -hmm. if, the chip, if the ship fulfills the requirements. And then what is actually interesting, there's a database that they put their results in. And this database is entered in by all the ports that are in this agreement. So, for example, the ship comes to, to Hamburg. The mm -hmm. Hamburg police check the vessel. They check whether the requirements are being fulfilled. They put in the results of the check into the database. And if they come to the result that this vessel is actually not, not okay with continuing its journey, they can contain it and ask for it to be repaired, for it to change whatever is wrong on board or to continue its journey and then they put whatever they found into this database and for example the port of of Rotterdam sees that this vessel was checked in in Hamburg and what were actually the criteria it was checked by ah and then they can look more closely and at very specific details exactly, they if they remedied it exactly, yeah cool. okay they can follow up on on this this test they can see what what else they want to look at and so they know before the vessel actually enters their port what kind of vessel is coming there okay before we discuss this port state control maybe also from a historical perspective how it developed i have one question how can we how can a police officer measure emissions does he smell it is there like <laughs> how does this work well that's a very good question i mean you can you can imagine how, what it looks like initially it was actually a black cloud so okay. it's, it's actually sometimes it's just yeah okay it was visible yeah. exactly <laughs> but by now it's 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 different and for example in in, in germany um, the federal maritime and hydrographic agency they have measurement stations at the coast of the north and baltic sea and um there they, man um, they monitor the compliance with the, um, with the regulations. But they are different. It's, it's fascinating, the technology here, because, for example, in Denmark, it's, 
it's actually drones that are flying into the clouds that come out of the vessel, so to say, and they they can test the quality of the air. I think it's in the Belgian coast that they are actually using small planes. Oh, great. It's yes. amazing. But as you can hear with what we are discussing, the problem is this is mostly coast measures, hey? So as soon as you're on the high seas, it's getting difficult. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for this. Because I was really, really curious yeah, how, it, yeah. how it may work. Maybe coming back to this port state control, yeah. what was the history of it? How, how did we end up and how did it <laughs> develop? Well, um, actually, the history of port state control begins in Europe with another tanker disaster. Of course. Yeah, we have already had a few of them. So um, this one is in March 1978, the Liberian-flagged oil tanker Amoko Cadiz. I hope this is pronounced correctly, I'm not 100% sure, um, ran aground off the coast of, um, of Brittany in France and the tanker broke into three parts and more than 220,000 tons of crude oil spilled into the sea. And you can imagine what the, uh, the, the environmental catastrophe was that followed this accident. Yeah, tremendous. And yeah, exactly. And the accident was actually caused by a breakdown of the tanker's steering gear, by insufficient monitoring of the ship's technical conditions, by inadequate training of the crew and deficiencies in the safety management on board. So all things that could be stopped by regulations. And this actually was then therefore the beginning of the port state control because 14 European states agreed to join forces against unsafe ships and poorly trained crews and irresponsible ship owners. So again, it was an international effort. Yep. Again, it was an international effort, but again, it needed a catastrophe in order to True. find a compromise and to find, so to say, a solution and to find then the so-called Paris Memorandum of Understanding from 1982 on port state control. Okay. Yeah. And this Paris Memorandum of Understanding from 1982, what does it say? It's just this agreement that you share the data? No, it's not only that. It's it's the basis to perform unannounced surveys of foreign flag merchant ships um, that call the ports of the member states of the Paris MOU. And um, that's what we were talking about. So you can, you can check the vessels. You yeah. um, can... Um, keep them in the port if they don't comply with actually the, the international regulations. Um, you have the database. So it's actually it's actually more than just having the database. It's a way of fulfilling the duties of the flag states when the flag state is not acting. Ah, okay. So there is, in fact, someone that takes care of it. Yeah. Now you said that the Paris MOU, are there similar uh, agreements? Yes, they are, because um, this Paris MOU proved very effective very soon. And the number of actually ships with deficiencies in the area of the Paris MOU declined. And so other states followed. And by now, okay. there are actually eight more port state control agreements in place worldwide. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, does this apply to all sorts of ports and maybe for the audience, um, the, the reason why I ask, the majority of the, for instance, the Greek ports are now often owned by private investors. Does this make a difference? Well, that's a very good question. Um, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. I do not know whether it makes a difference, but you have to keep in mind that hardly any international trading will just go into one European port. So it, there won't be a vessel that just enters into this private-owned Greek port. True, yes. So it will, I would imagine, at least enter some of the ports that are 
part of the Paris uh, Memorandum of Understanding. So the vessel can actually not trade successfully in Europe if it does not comply with the international instruments on ship safety, prevention of maritime uh, marine pollution and on working and living conditions of seafarers. So even if, which I'm not sure of, I have to admit, I've never read anything in that regard. It's different for ports that are privately owned, which actually yeah. I can't imagine because they also need to protect the environment. They don't want to be liable for any problems that occur. True. And when we leave the European Union with all the equipment and all the technical possibilities, yeah. what if some ports do not have these technical possibilities? Well, at least if they are part of the MOU, um, they have exchange mechanisms. So with the mm -hmm. database that we have, for, for example, if we are in ports that don't have the drones or that don't have the, the mechanisms to check the, um, the, the emissions once a ship comes into a port, they can look into the database and they can see which vessels have been checked, where is the problem, and thereby use this information that has been collected by other states and make use of it. So also with those states, it makes sense. And for example, there's on a European basis, I mean, it's, this is, I have a lot of information on the European basis, sorry, um, there's an exchange mechanism that states can borrow drones from EMSA, for example, and use those in order to um, measure emissions. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah, that's a good thing. You you mentioned that the data is collected at the shore or at least close to the shore. Isn't it then rather unpredictable to transfer it maybe to, to other ports? Well, I mean, the problem that I see with data being collected close to the shore is not so much that it differs in between the different ports because what is actually being transferred is the data from the one port. So, for example, the Paris, uh, the 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 um, Hamburg port would transfer its own data to, for example, Rotterdam. Yeah, There's okay. actually no difference. What's the problem with this data is that it's only being evaluated at shore is that since those measures in, in order, for example, to reduce sulfur, as we have already discussed in um, ship emissions, are very expensive. For example, different fuels need to be used, which are more expensive. It makes sense for ships I mean, it makes sense in a commercial sense yeah, yeah. To, um, to change back to the heavy fuel oil and to cheaper oils once they are out of reach. Oh, and they have different tanks then. Yeah, exactly, sense. exactly. Yeah. And that's a huge problem because, I mean, there's, for example, in, in Germany, there's a vessel, it's a, um, a new vessel of the, of the government that actually has a mechanism on board with which it can, it can measure emissions also on the sea. It's not only shore-based. But in general, there are hardly any mechanisms in order to control vessels that are not close to shore or in a port. So that is actually a huge problem that also the port state controls face because it's, there's no possibility, for example, to use satellites or any other measures in order to measure emissions from the shore of ships that are far outside. Okay, but you mentioned at least the EU is trying to, to become a driving force of the IMO maybe, so to speak. Can you maybe briefly uh, say how beneficial the EU is for this fight um, here? I think it's very beneficial because, I mean, we have pointed out that actually a lot of major disasters, um, the, the oil tanker accidents that we actually talked about, led to MARPOL and led to port state control. And now... It's not major accidents, it's not oil spills, it's not disasters that lead to the international community acting faster and going forward. It's often the European Union that puts pressure on the IMO by saying, well, if you don't do it, we do it. Then we have regional measures 
that are actually yeah. not the best solution because they are not international and they will make it difficult for shipping companies and that can't be in your interest. True. You can see that, I mean, with only what we discussed, you can see how the EU can have a huge impact on the IMO and True. how the EU with the threat of, okay, well, then we do it ourselves, can mm -hmm. actually pressure, I mean, pressure is perhaps the wrong word, but, but push... Gently. Gently push, thank you very much. <laughs> Gently push the IMO forward. And I think that is very good. Yeah, definitely. Last but not least, and speaking of international solutions, I would like to come back to the beginning of our discussion. On November 10th, the Clyde Bank Declaration was launched in Glasgow and introduced the so-called Green Corridors. The Clyde Bank Declaration is a global initiative within zero emission shipping missions, encouraging governments to support the establishment of green shipping corridors. Decarbonization and decarbonized shipping routes between two ports. Um, in the COP 2006 Clyde Bank Declaration, 22 countries agreed to work together with shipping industry leaders to develop the world's first green shipping corridor. This groundbreaking collaboration will play a central role in decarbonization of shipping and the role of the port was repeatedly described as crucial. According to the declaration, the establishment of partnerships shall be facilitated with participation from ports, and here we have it again, operators and others along the value chain. To accelerate the decarbonization of the shipping sector and its fuel supply through green shipping corridors projects, this shall be achieved then. And furthermore, two or more signatures to the declaration identify and take steps with relevant willing ports operators and other along the value chain to decarbonize the specific shared maritime route. So Katarina, what is your opinion on the green corridors? I could not find more details. As we learned, airlines are definitely good. Yeah. <laughs> But other than this, what is your opinion? Well, um, I agree with you there. It was difficult to find any information on the green corridors. For me, it's not 100% sure what is planned here but i think it's um it needs a bit of time in order to see what cop 26 actually means for shipping and to see what what the imo and what the states will make out of this i think it's a bit early to determine um what impact it can actually have on what we have discussed so far well then we wait and see what green corridors mean thank you so much katarina for this interesting discussion thank you for having me it was a pleasure glasgow emphasized it's important of and And I'm very, very curious whether, but also hopeful that uh, the agreement can uh, contribute to the better. Thanks also to our audience. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we can welcome you to the next episode again. Until then, stay tuned, be curious and have a wonderful and safe Christmas. <laughs>